Welcome to our podcast. Not prod. I can't hear It's pod. I think I think I need to speak language mythologist right now. Let's try that one again. Hello, SLPs. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, can start confessing now. This is so cheesy. Well, hey, Lisa. What up, Sarah? Not much. How's it going? You know, just living the dream here in the desert. That's good. I like your positive attitude. Thank you. It's nice to see you in person. We are actually in the confessional together. We're like really close to each other too. We are. Which sometimes gets a little awkward. Well, have you had a COVID test lately? Um, no. Okay. That's <laughs> probably not safe. We hope that we don't make an announcement later. No, no, no. We both have been very safe. We feel safe. We're like family. We're fine. So this is, I am really excited about this episode because this is kind of like, well, it's not kind of, it is a bonus episode because we have been invited to use this um, episode in the SLP Connect PodCon. We did this last year um, and had the best experience because I just think what Vanita has done with um, giving CEUs for podcasts is brilliant. Super cool. That you get to listen to this in your car and actually have an opportunity to earn CEUs. So Heads up, if you're listening to this past, what, October 15th? I do not know the deadline. There's going to be deadlines at the end of the episode for when you have to submit your CEUs. If you're listening after that date, sorry, no more CEUs for you, but don't bounce because it's still a a great, great episode. So we're going to leave this up on our podcast even after SLP Connect ends. For those of you who have never listened to one of our episodes, the title of our uh, podcast is True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. It is very much a conversation. We throw ourselves under the bus. We try to talk about all the angst and feelings of our profession. So this is going to be very similar to that same typical kind of style we have. Um, but because it's for ASHA CEUs, we do have some disclosures we need to do and some learning outcomes and an agenda we're going to follow. Um, so I'm going to have Lisa go over disclosures and learning outcomes, and then we're going to introduce our guest and the topic. All right. So the only disclosures we have as SLP Toolkit, Sarah and I, um, is that we have ownership in SLP Toolkit, which is a web-based app, and it might be brought up during this course. We'll see. Um, but we have no non-financial disclosures to talk about. But Amy Graham, our guest, is the owner of Graham Speech Therapy, and she has developed materials available for purchase on her private practice website. She's also developed materials for Bjorn Speech Publications. She's an affiliate of Throat Scope, which will probably be brought up today, and um, sells materials on Teachers Pay Teachers. And so any or all of these products might be mentioned during this pod course. And then Amy also receives MedBridge revenue share. So um, no non-financial relationships to disclose, but here's what we're really looking to do with today's episode is to talk about oral motor exams, which is really, you know, one of those things that sometimes you do it, sometimes you don't know why you do it, sometimes you don't do it. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty and um, do some discussions on what are those different aspects of an oral motor exam? What can we do virtually and what can we not do virtually? Use a throat scope. Exactly. I don't think we can do that. Um, We are going to talk about some tips to make virtual oral motor examinations easier and then also explain how we can use this information during that we received during the exam to make differential diagnosis of speech sound disorders. 
So that's it. That's it. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Let's introduce our guest. And there is a very good reason why, why we have Annie Graham with us today. First and foremost, we just love her. Um, we've known her for a while now and had the privilege of actually hanging out with her in person. And she is just as one. If you follow her and you and you know anything about her, she's really that amazing in real life. Um, and we consider her to be a really good friend of ours. And then we also have her on here because um, this is not our area of expertise. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Lisa, but I don't know if you're like, a professional when it comes to oral max. Absolutely. Uh-huh, sure. So we brought Amy in because this is one of those conversations that needs to be had. I need it. And we want somebody who knows what they're talking about to help us discuss it. So Amy, welcome. Thank you, Sarah, Lisa. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, this is so fun. Okay, I will you do, and just in case, I, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but if they don't, will you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. So I have been an SLP for over 20 years. Um, I am in Colorado and I have a very small boutique style private practice, which is like I always say, just a fancy word for small. It's just me. So I'm a sole practitioner. I began um, doing this private practicing about a little over four years ago. Um, and I have always loved speech sound disorders, but haven't had the opportunity to only focus on that always. And so the private practice was my opportunity to kind of have my little niche practice and focus primarily on speech sound disorders. So I see kids primarily with articulation delays and deficits, um, those kids with phonological disorders and children with apraxia of speech. So that is my primary caseload. Um, and so I have loved doing that. And so in doing, um, speech sound disorders for the last, I would say I've been primarily SSDs for maybe three years. Um, and so in doing those, I've always done an oral mech exam. It kind of, you know, goes into what we're going to talk about today. Um, but I never had a really good way to, organize the information or have make sure I had, you know, was hitting all everything that I really wanted to look at as far as oral mechs go. Um, and so that's why I, I know you mentioned earlier, but that's why I created an oral mech exam, my oral facial exam, um, that I, I sell, but I actually created it for myself just cause I wanted something that's kind of easy checklist style going down the list. Um, and then the more I talk to other SLPs, because I also have a pretty big, um, social media platform, um, on Instagram and my Facebook is growing, but primarily Instagram. So I have, I post a lot of my therapy videos there. Um, and even videos of demonstrations on how I do oral mech exams, how I do my assessments, why I include my oral mech exam in my assessments. Um, and I started to find out that a lot of SLPs were not comfortable doing it. Um, didn't really know why they were doing it. And so I decided that, um, in addition to my little awesome checklist style assessment, I would actually go ahead and do a really thorough guideline section so that anybody that has this oral mech exam or my oral facial exam is what I call it, can kind of look in the back under the guidelines and say, okay, I see that they're, you know, maybe their tongue um, strength or the range of movement is a little off, but what does that mean? And so that's why I kind of went in a little bit more in depth in uh, my exam. But anyway, that's kind of a, a basis of what I do. I have this small private practice. I only do speech sound disorders and I absolutely love training other SLPs um, on how to really do effective assessments for differential diagnosis. 
I am so excited that um, we're, we're having you discuss this very thing because Lisa and I agree. We love a checklist. We love <laughs> something that guides our clinical thinking. But at the same time, we need that rationale. And so before we get into the rationale, I want to just take one step back and talk about kind of the current climate because we're going to get into why we should be doing the oral MEC. But before we even do that, let's talk for a minute about mm-hmm. how, how this is in, impacted by, I'm assuming you're doing teletherapy right now with a lot of your clients. I'm doing teletherapy with a lot of my clients. And actually back in March, we, I switched everybody to teletherapy for a couple of months. Um, I've gradually been seeing, you know, with some COVID guidelines in place, seeing people in person again, but there are those families that, um, and granted I'm private practice. I know a lot of SLPs do not have that option. You know, if you're in some school districts, you're doing teletherapy period. Um, and so, yeah, it's been super challenging to figure out, especially with speech sound disorders, um, how to do assessments uh, over teletherapy, telehealth, and even therapy as well. So, yeah, we're, I'm doing both right now, but it has been a huge learning curve. So you did pick up some like new evaluations where you got to do oral motor exams yeah. in the context of teletherapy? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, and I know we'll talk about it probably later because there are some things that are just hard to do (laughs) with an oral mech exam over teletherapy. Um, But there are a lot of things that you can, a lot of information that you can gain from an oral mech over teletherapy. And um, I've had the opportunity to do that and kind of learn from uh, some mistakes I made (laughs) and learn from things that um, actually worked really well. Okay. One of the things I, you know, I know the focus really of this um, course is oral mex, but it's, it's a part of the assessment. Absolutely. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about what does your uh, typical assessment look like when you're considering um, whether or not there's a speech sound disorder? Yeah. So first and foremost, I get a very thorough case history from my families. Um, and I know you know, we'll talk a little bit about the oral mech and, you know, what some of that stuff means, though, some of that information. But if you have a really thorough case history, um, which I have my own too, because I, I some of these case histories that I was using were not really specific to speech sound disorders. And I was kind of wanting to ask so many more questions of the parents as far as, okay, well, is there something maybe... I'm seeing red flags for myofunctional disorders. Maybe the child is having difficulty sleeping. Maybe they're snoring at night. Maybe they were, um, they had, there was pain during, um, when the mother was nursing, maybe they weren't able to nurse. So there's some kind of red flags like that that can pop up in the case history that can make me the kind of guide and direct what I really do want to look for in the oral mech exam, just in and of itself. So I think case history is absolutely, if you can, I know we're on, we're not always able to do that um, in the settings. I worked in the schools for a number of years and I was not always, I, sometimes I never even met the parents ever. And I worked with these kids for years. So it's not always possible, but whenever you can, if you can talk to a caregiver um, about a, this case, you know, get their case history, a really thorough one that for me, that's first thing. Well, um, even in the schools, I think that's the whole idea of a review of existing data because yeah. there is typically a case history form, that a very generic one that has yeah. been created by the district. But that doesn't mean you can't send your own form home specific to communication if you'd like to add that to the paperwork that goes home. Oh, but then absolutely. also when the team meets to review the existing data, that would be a great time to ask questions and record this information if you didn't have a chance to get it in any sort of checklist form. Right. And that's why I made, cause I, I, 
I know because I'm a, I'm a mom. I have three kids. Whenever I get those case history forms, you know, at the doctor's office or a particular specialist, oh my gosh, they're crazy long that, you know, they're wanting all this information that takes me like, you know, an hour to fill the whole thing out. So I, I, I have my own too, where it's just really checklist friendly for the family, but it touches on everything, family history, birth history, um, you know, pregnancy history, delivery, was that an issue, medical history? Cause there's lots of things that can pop up even in the medical history, um, nasal congestion, frequent colds, chronic ear infections, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that can really kind of guide your assessment as well. And then I, I always ask about feeding and eating history, um, thumb, finger sucking, pacifier use, uh, you know, were they messy eaters? Was drooling observed? Because all of those things too, some of those things can be red flags for myofunctional disorders or even maybe sensory issues where the child might need a, um, a referral to an OT. So, and then we look at, I look at developmental history. Um, are there any, you know, delays in their gross motor skills, fine motor skills, educational and academic history, speech and language history. So there's a lot of things that, you know, you can, for SSDs, for speech sound disorders that I look a lot deeper into, um, that can inform the rest of my assessment. I love this because I I think like Lisa said, I've always just used the generic form I'm given Mm -hmm. and I collect the information because I know it's something that we're supposed to do as part of the assessment. And then uh, I just kind of put it to the side and move on. And so one, I need the right questions. Yeah. But then two, I need to know why I'm asking them and what that information is what telling is clinically me. clinically significant exactly. from that information. Right. And, uh, and we'll include resources um, in this episode um, in the resource section. And so this will, is definitely something that I want to share with everybody because I have a feeling it looks really different than the generic <laughs> form I used. It but does. again, didn't offer that much help for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It does. Um, and then going down through the rest of my assessment checklist, um, I have, which by the way, I'll let you know too. It's, it's a free downloadable checklist. I love checklists, um, on my website. So it's an assessment checklist and I just go down, I get my case history. I make sure the hearing's been screened. I get an intelligibility scale, um, in context scale completed. And then I do my articulation assessment, those single word tests, right. Um, that you use. And then, um, I always look at phonological awareness too for kids because we know um, research shows that those kids with any type of speech sound disorders are at more risk for difficulty learning to read. So it's always something that I kind of add in there too. Um, And then I get a connected speech sample. Then I do my oral facial exam, which I usually do last because you're kind of um, up up all in that kid's business doing those oral facial exams. So I want to make sure they're really comfortable with me um, if, you know, if they're in person, especially. Um, I'm going to do a gag reflex right out the gate. Not first thing. <laughs> You're like, hi, I'm Amy. It's nice to meet I'm you. I'm going to touch your uvula with the Exactly. It's so true. And these are the things we have to consider and think about. If you're just meeting this child for the first time, the oral mech is in so mouth. invasive. And it's not know. something I would start with. I agree. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do it at all, which I have been very guilty of skipping that part of the process. And then finding out months into treatment, I this is a true story, I um, qualified a student for speech sound disorders, and probably a couple of months in, I was looking, for some reason I was real close to their mouth, probably for some tongue shaping or something, and realized the child had a bifid uvula. But what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, well, I hope we're going to talk about what that means in a minute when we get into the structural reasons and what we should be looking for. But it was that moment of, oh, 
well, if I had done that two months ago, and then how, what is so awkward about it is how am I supposed to bring it up now? You know, <laughs> right. I didn't do this in the first assessment, but we've got something we need to talk about. So maybe that's what we need to talk about. You said it was kind of optional in your practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, whether you did that or not. so let's talk a little bit more about that aspect of your um, evaluation where you're doing that oral motor examination. What do we have to be doing other than, I mean, I think of, I used to be like, okay, smile, pucker your lips. Right. Mm-hmm. Let me take it, let's say, ah. Move look, your tongue left and right. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, right. And we're looking at all those things, right? But then what I do, I want to look a little bit more in depth. So when I'm looking at just the face, I'm looking to see if there's symmetry. And I'm also looking at to see if there's, what their tone is at rest. Like if they're hypotonic, if they're hypertonic, um, I'm looking for mouth breathing too, because if a child is mouth breathing, that is not a good thing. Mouth breathing is not typical. Um, and so that's one of those red flags for those myofunctional deficits as well. But I always look at these, each of these aspects in the context of what their speech errors are. So if you find something like, Oh my gosh, this kid's tone is just, you know, really, you know, low, but if the issue is not necessarily dysarthria, then it's something to note, but it may not necessarily inform the type of therapy you do um, because it may not be the thing that's actually impacting the child's speech. But it's always something that I kind of want to know. So I look at that face. I look at the jaw. I look at their range of motion. Have you ever had a kid that comes to you and their, you know, their lips don't hardly move and their jaw doesn't hardly move? <laughs> They're like, I can't hear you. Your your jaw is not moving up and down. So I'm looking at whether or not there's good range of motion with that jaw. Um, and then dentition too is another thing that I look at because those it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, this kid has an overbite. We can't work on this sound. But like I said, it's a, it's one of those red flags for, Oh, I see an open bite. I see an overbite. Is there a thumb sucking going on? (laughs) Probably so. So we probably need to either address that or bring it up to the parents. Um, I know it's not something, all of these things that I address here, you don't always address in the schools, but it's at least information that you can provide the parents and say, you know, I've noticed these things. I know that um, maybe that their, the child's bite is off. It's just one of those red flags that I notice. Um, and then orthodontia, please check to see if your child has a, any kind of, um, palatal <laughs> device, <laughs> because I have had some kids that come to me and like their speech is so slushy. Oh, you have a palate expander. Your tongue cannot get to where it needs to be, um, in order to say some of these sounds. And so of course your speech is going to be off. So I think looking inside the mouth just to know what's going on is super helpful. Um, I look at the pharynx too. I want to know if you have a child who's hypo, um, hyponasal, so they kind of sound stuffed up. Are their tonsils big? You're only going to know that if you look in their mouth. Um, and then I look at the palate. And so if you have a child who's hypernasal, who sounds kind of like they're they're talking through their nose and you see something like, Ooh, maybe a bivid uvula. Well, it can be, uh, it can be, um, a sign. Often it can go hand in hand with a submucosal cleft, which means that soft palate may not be working well enough to close off during, um, those non nasal sounds. And so you're going to have a child that sounds really nasal. And so that definitely is, if the child Now, not all bifid uvulas warrant this, but it's one of those things to say, okay, if you are also hearing some hypernasality and a bifid uvula, that child needs a referral to a craniofacial team because they're the ones who can rule in or rule out velopharyngeal dysfunction and tell you whether or not therapy is even going to help because it may not. 
um, depending on what's going on. And then you're not working with this poor kid <laughs> trying to fix something that isn't fixable outside of, you know, surgery. So in my defense, I do want to say it didn't um, impact him. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That she knows there was no hypernasality. <laughs> there you go. I think one of the things I used to see a lot in oral motor exams too is that whole idea of being unable to, like, if you had them stick out their tongue, yeah, and they couldn't disassociate, they just kind of rest it on their lips and their their teeth. Yeah, and then I think of like a sound like R, yep. which they have to be able to disassociate movements to get that sound in. Absolutely. Look at me. I do know something. You do. Absolutely. No, it's so true. (laughs) You're very welcome. No, it's true. Because when I, when I assess um, the tongue, you're not just looking at, okay, can you stick it out? You don't have a, you know, a tongue tie. You're good. You're looking at whether or not they can move that tongue independent from the jaw, because you're absolutely right. If you're going to work on R, that child has to be able to move the tongue independent of the jaw. So you may have to kind of back up for a session or two and teach them how to do that. But you're not going to know unless you do this oral facial exam. And so I'm always looking at um, sometimes to the size of the tongue. I've had kids with really large tongues um, and small little um, oral cavities. And so you're going to have to try to figure a way um, to help this child um, use compensatory strategies, maybe for particular phonemes. Um, and then like, I'm looking also at the strength of the tongue. I will say the strength I'm looking more at agility of the movements because we don't, we know we don't need a ton of strength, um, in order to produce speech well, but you, that child needs to be able to move that tongue with agility. So that's what I'm, I'm looking for, but I am still looking at, um, strength as well, because if I notice, if I look back at the child's speech and they're kind of, you know, imprecise articulatory contacts, if they're a little breathy and then all of their muscles are a little bit weak, there's dysarthria. So all of these things can kind of, um, we need to know these, this information in the context of, you know, their speech and their, um, oral motor, oral mech, um, function so that we know what kind of appropriate therapies to use. So definitely I look at the, I look for all those things in the tongue and then lips too. You're right. You want to know, okay, can this child, um, are, are there, is there weakness in the lips? Because if you're working on bilabials and they're just having a really hard time building up that intraoral pressure for F, for B and P, um, that's something to know that you're going to have to really teach that child how to do. So there's or, or lip or lack of lip closure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Or, and sometimes this will help you to figure out what kinds of cues and prompts are going to help that child. Maybe they do really do need some tactile prompting. And so, you know, you need to have somebody there hard over teletherapy, but, um, if you ever get that kid back in person, you know, I use my, my fingers to kind of close those lips for them while we practice our, whatever sound and whatever word we're, we're working on. So yeah, there's so much information than just, okay, pucker your lips, stick your tongue out. Well, and I think it's interesting that you brought up that idea of type of cueing too, because I read this brilliant article by this lady named Amy Graham. I don't know if you've heard of her. <laughs> I've heard of her. Um, but I had never thought of this. You had mentioned in this blog post that you had written for um, Tandem Speech. Tandem Speech. Mm. That this idea of if you have a kid with a really um, hyper gag reflex, yeah. then that might not be a kid that you want to be putting your hands around his mouth because it might initiate a you know, so it, it informs the type of cueing that may or may not be successful with that kid too. So I thought that was super cool. That was a absolutely bit of knowledge I learned. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Amy's a wealth of it. I know. 
So while we're still talking about kind of the rationale of why this is absolutely something we should be doing, you've uh-huh. convinced me of that. Okay. I, I promise I, I got that part. I need to do this every time I am going to be um, considering speech sound disorders. <laughs> now, when we talk about when people just hear the word oral motor, there's so much controversy mm. around the treatment or a motor treatment. I'm not going to get into that, but I, the point being that a lot of maybe what's controversial about it is the oral motor um, treatment approaches that aren't um, actually necessary for speech. Right. So when I hear that, then I think, well, when I'm doing an oral motor exam, should I be doing blowing and, you know, non-speech motor movements? Or should everything I be doing in my oral motor exam be related to how we produce a speech sound? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked it. Because you're right. I mean, there's still kind of a lot of controversy over, you know, the, what we call those not NSOMEs, right? Non-speech oral motor exercises, which is different from oral motor skills, right? We, But I still look at those non-speech oral motor skills, especially for my kids with whom I suspect apraxia, because that's the only way you're going to know if there is any non-speech oral apraxia is if you have them volitionally do those movements, pucker your lips, smell really big, pretend like you're blowing out a candle. Um, What do you do when you're going to kiss mom on the cheek? And if they cannot do those things, and then you come to find out um, you do a dynamic motor speech assessment, and yes, they do have apraxia of speech, they probably all those red flags um, were already there because you know that they could not do those those volitional non-speech movements. So you have to check that. That's why we look at that. It's not because so would you do that though. If you had a kid that came to you for an evaluation because the parents were concerned with like a single sound speech error, would you, you know, go into that as well? I always go into it because for one thing, sometimes I will get a child that. In fact, I have two on my caseload right now with a history of apraxia. But those apraxic, those motor planning um, issues are resolving. And so they don't necessarily sound or look apraxic right off the bat, but there's a history of it. And I've done my case history, so I know that. And so I still want to know if there are any issues in that area that that child really has a hard time with. It's also um, informative as to prognosis. So if a child has apraxia and you find that they don't have those a non-speech apraxia, that's better for prognosis. So if they do though, you know that the prognosis is a little, is a little bit worse if they do have non-speech apraxia, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And this was a pretty eye-opening. We worked with our mutual friend, Jenny Bjorn, yes, um, Jenny. to talk about um, an informal assessment for apraxia about, what, a year ago. And it was really eye-opening for us because that was one of the first things that she said we needed to include was the non-speech oral motor exam. Yeah, And, you know, that was one of the things when we created our oral MEC checklist and toolkit, mm-hmm. we, it was very, very focused on the speech um, now there was some, there's a, a component for structural looking to it, the, at the right. jaw and the tongue and, and things like that inside the mouth, but then it was all very focused around speech. And so mm-hmm. I loved when she talked about why that is important for apraxia mm-hmm. and, um, something we need to consider. And because the impact on treatment, and, and we'll, I think we talk about this more later, but what this looks like when we're getting this information directly impacts how we're going to treat that child. Um, And so that was really eye-opening, I think, for both Lisa and I. Absolutely, completely. And I think, too, it's so quick to do those things. It's like, okay, pucker your lips. I mean, it takes... 
10 seconds. So why not do it? So it's on my checklist. Yep. Did it. No problem there. Nope. The child or I'll mark that. No, the child did need a model. And even with a model, it was difficult. So it's so easy and so quick to do. You might as well do it. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the oral motor examination, but I'd really love to dig further into what do you have to, you know, what components of this exam can you do virtually and what do you have maybe to Maybe say both, maybe yeah. start with what do you do if you're in person mm-hmm. and then, so like what tools do I need? Um, and then how then do I do that virtually? Okay. So this is where I mentioned throat scope. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. it is, I will say, I, I have so many SLPs who are like, well, how do you get a, an oral mech on a three-year-old or even a, from some four-year-olds? And the throwscope is like, we call it either a magic fairy wand or a lightsaber. And lightsaber. it is, um, yep. yeah, it is amazing. You know what's so funny? They sent us one early on. And so we went to the streets where our office is located in Mesa, Arizona, which is part of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh-huh. And, um, we were we downtown, went, we were downtown on the streets, just walking up to people and asking them to identify what they thought it was. What did it do? So we heard lightsaber, mini lightsaber. We heard yeah. pregnancy test. I have that video somewhere. Maybe I'll add it. But it is, it's magical. So much better than a big giant popsicle stick. It but I did is. do the flavored ones. When I couldn't have a throat scope, I well, always made sure I had the super duper and I let them pick. Do you want grape? Do you want cherry? Okay, fair. Yes. They loved it. Yeah. However, because I, I used to use those too. However, I would have some kids who were just totally averse to any oh, kind of... Oh, still would. You know? It's flavor. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Or, or they didn't even like the flavor. They're like, ew, that's gross. I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> Dang it. Now okay. what? Now, now what? I'm using my finger. No. I know. So, okay, yeah. so throat scope is a must. Absolutely. I, I think it is. I mean, you can use a little, you know, tongue, de- a wooden tongue depressor, but I, if you're, especially if you're looking and assessing small kids, younger kids, and you got to look in their mouth, a throat scope, for one thing, it makes them less afraid. It's, they, it's less like the doctor's office, right? Where they do actually gag. Um, and then secondly, it absolutely lights up the, the oral cavity, like nothing else. So, cause usually I've got my little flashlight or I'm turning my phone light on so I can kind of see in the back of their throat and you know, it's kind of clunky with a throat scope. It just totally lights it up. So I can really get quickly. That's the other key too. With little ones, you want to quickly get in and out of there because they're, you know, they're kind of wiggly and squirmy. So I would say that's uh, my first tip is that's the tool that I use. I use my. And it has scope. a replaceable cap then that you it's, use for different students. So it is basically it's a the clear blade clicks on when it clicks on to the base, it lights up the blade, and then you it's disposable, so you toss it when you're done. Um, so it's. I love it. I use it all. I actually use it in therapy too. So you do, you toss it, don't clean it. I know some people are like, oh, we just clean it, especially in the day of COVID. Let's not clean those blades anymore. Just toss them. They're disposable. (laughs) They're recyclable. (laughs) Just toss them. Um, But so that's what I use first. So in my typical practice, I guess maybe the easiest way is I'll just go through each one and talk about um, what I look at and the fact that you can, whether or not you can do it in telepractice and in person too. So like we talked about the face, right? I'm looking at symmetry. I'm looking for their tone at rest. Um, and I'm looking to see if there's any mouth breathing. You can do that on over teletherapy. You can do that in person. That's easy to do. It's a quick check. Boom, boom. 
I look at jaw range of movement, open your mouth, close your mouth. How is the jaw range of movement? And then is the symmetry of movement. Um, is there any groping during, um, during when you ask them to do some of these tasks and, um, that we can always, we can do over teletherapy and in person. Dentition is a little bit trickier because I think the, the further you get inside the mouth, <laughs> the harder it is to do over teletherapy. It's just not great, even with a throat scope. However, um, the couple that I have done via teletherapy, um, I've had a family, one family that was not super close, but they actually purchased their own throat scope. Um, and so they had one on their side of the camera, I had one on my side of the camera and that if that's a possibility at all, it is, it makes them so much smoother because the child can have it and you can tell them, okay, now look up a little bit. Okay. Open wide. And they're holding it themselves or even the parent is holding it. And I was able to get a really good look inside their mouth, um, over telehealth, um, over teletherapy using it when they had it on their side. Is it now, always is their mouth like wide open at their webcam? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, we get super close to the webcam. <laughs> like, I want to fill up that screen with my mouth and their mouth because I'm looking inside. Absolutely. It's not always possible. I know that. But if, you know, if it's not possible, then I put it on my list of things to do once I can see that child in person. Um, but it's that is one thing that has made it a little bit easier. Now, when I'm looking at the tonsils, I can't always see that. Even with the kid close to the webcam, you're like, okay, well, I can't tell. Um, but like I said, you're you're looking at this in in the context of what their speech errors are. So if you have a child who's not necessarily hypo or hyper nasal, or they don't, you know, they're not mouth breathing, then okay, you can probably skip that for a little bit and come back to it when you can see that kid in person. Um, Another thing that I always try to do um, in person is to get a good look at the hard and soft palate um, because arch height of that hard palate, like if they have a really high and narrow palate, usually that means their tongue is low in the mouth at rest, which is not how we want it to be. <laughs> we want that. You see that a lot with kids with Down syndrome. Yes, exactly. And I will see that a lot too with my um, single sound error kids who have lisps because their tongue is tends to be forward at rest. And so it tends to be forward during speech too. And so sometimes if the child, that's another red flag for a myofunctional issue, which I don't want people to confuse that with, you know, non-speech oral motor stuff, because um, those are, in my mind, those are, are two distinct types of therapy. Because if you have a child with a tongue thrust, which is a myofunctional disorder, that you have to treat the tongue thrust. You can't just say, okay, well, keep your tongue back behind your teeth for S, and yet they still have this tongue thrust swallow pattern. Often I have to treat that tongue thrust before I'm ever going to have any kind of um, success treating the lisp. So that's... And a speech-language pathologist yeah. can, can do that treatment, but it needs to be the approach um, that's kind of uh, probably been formulated by a myofacial specialist? Yes, you don't. Okay. And so, exactly. So I have taken a couple of online courses, honestly. Like I am no myofunctional um, expert. I know um, an SLP in town who is. So if I have, maybe there's a lot of red flags going on and I, I, I think that, ooh, there's more stuff here than I think I'm able to treat, I will refer out and say, there's more stuff going on here. But if it's like a simple, I can tell, like a, a simple tongue thrust, if, if you take a, a course or two, even online, it will give you so much more information to start looking for those types of red flags. So 
I Definitely. Think that's one of the controversies, though, with this form of treatment is that to take the courses in person, they're thousands of dollars. Oh, I know. That's why done. I won't do it. <laughs> right. So, um, so is that the controversy, or is there the controversy? There's not enough research to support that it's effective. I think both. Oh. And what? Well, yeah. That's a that's a podcast for another day. But yeah, I right. think, but I think there is a difference between and really, I, I like what I tell SLPs that ask me about that. I say. Take a course, take it with a grain of salt, because I think some of the things, um, I think there are some things that are obviously still controversial as far as the claims being made about what there, who should have this type of therapy. Basically um, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, think, and I think that's the issue, right? I, like I, there are few kids that I come across that I'm like, okay, we need to really work on the myofunctional stuff first. Most of the time I'm able to do, address the speech and if there are other issues, you know, we can address it down the road or I might refer out, but I don't think, you know, every kid with every speech sound disorder, and that's kind of what drives me nuts is, oh my gosh, it's a tongue tie check for the tongue tie. That kind of drives me a little bit crazy too. Yes. I know that, you know, function and structure like can impact, but not always, not all, not all kids who have, you know, particular structural differences are not going to be able to, you know, to compensate for speech. And I think sometimes we need to stay in our lane, which is speech, um, and not kind of, you know, overreach a little bit. So I, I don't, I, I try not to come down on one side or the other, because I think there is benefit to that type of training. However, <laughs> I um, love you because you have hit every controversial topic I know. <laughs> that is literally, uh, the, the focus of debate in many of Facebook groups. I'm pretty good at doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and correct all comments to Amy or sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just go ahead and give everybody my email address at the end. <laughs> no, but I love the way, and this is what it always comes down to is first of all, let's be real. We don't have enough research no, for most of the things we not. do. No. Plus one of the tiers is clinical judgment and expertise. Yes. So right. I think what I love what you're telling me is you're very thoughtful about it. Yes. And so you look, you acknowledge these things. Yes. Then you think about, is it making an impact? Yes. Am I the appropriate person to provide support? Do I need to refer? Do I now? Uh, and this gets a little tricky in the school setting. So those yes, of you who are school-based SLPs out there, I know you're like, okay, but what about me? I have a kid who I know has significant tongue thrust that mm-hmm. you know seems to be out of my area of expertise, or maybe even something that shouldn't you know qualify for my support yeah. in a school setting. What does that look like? I hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things. I I don't have an answer for district protocols and guidelines are different everywhere. Um, but we don't have the opportunity to refer out and well, that and tongue thrust is dramatic in a lot of our, our kiddos with speech for speech sound disorders. Now what I used to do, and I don't, it's what I advise other SLPs. But when I was in the schools, I would clearly tell parents like this does not qualify this child for this, for our services based on this, 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 and this. However, I do notice these things. So what I, you know, if you would like to look further into that, um, these are some specialists that might be able to give you more information. So you can be very diplomatic about it, but what drives me nuts is to just keep parents in the dark about it and not even tell them what you're seeing. You can very easily say that the child does not qualify for school services based on, you know, our, our particular guidelines. But I am noticing some things that you might want to follow up with your, um, your pediatrician about, and then let them know what those things are. And you can include those in a report. Absolutely. I, I always did. 
and I never got in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of which, and Lisa was the lead SLP in the district where, where we worked. And so, um, you, you probably can attest to this too. There's always this kind of hang up for a lot of SLPs that if we see something during this oral mech, that looks structural. So whether or not it's going to be the velopharyngeal, I I had a a child who I was convinced there was some weakness back there that was having a huge impact on nasality. Um, Any of those things where a medical person needs to be involved or the orthodontist, everybody hesitates to do the referral because the school has to pay for it. Yeah, they think a district's culpable. And really it's, it's not about who's paying for things. It's more about does the team have the information they need to determine eligibility? So even something like Um, if you have a kid with hypernasality, you can document everything that you're hearing, but ultimately you can't really determine what the impairment is if you don't have that medical component. So if they go get it during that 60 day evaluation window, we can include that information. Mm -hmm. Um, well, actually I think you could say that there is an impairment, but I don't, the part that you could never answer on that eligibility criteria where is there an impairment does it require special education? And is there an adverse educational impact that you could say, yes, there's hypernasality. This is not right. That is an impairment. You right. could say, yes, this is impacting them. But that part about, is it only correctable with special education? That's the part that the team would not be able to answer without that medical component. So that's right. why it is okay to say, parents, we are finding this during the evaluation. We still have this window. You yes. can push out that met meeting until uh, the eligibility determination until the end of that 60 day window. And then worst case scenario, if you don't get it, you can't qualify right then. But what you can say is as soon as you do get that component, submit it to the district and we'll do a review of data and we'll include that information along with all of the other information that we collected. And maybe we can determine eligibility at that time. I am so glad you mentioned that. I think that is such a perfect way to look at it and for, for other SLPs to understand how to address it with parents. So um, you talked a lot about checklists, and I imagine that definitely makes it more streamlined. Are there any other tips and tricks that you have that um, you found have really, you you talked about doing things quickly and um, that that is always helpful, but do you have any other tips and tricks for just streamlining this whole process? Yeah. So especially with teletherapy, I think I have learned with little ones, since you're just on that screen, you have to move quickly. And so what I have found is, especially during these assessments, is to kind of break it up. And so I might do a few words from the Arctic test, then I'll go back and we'll do another couple tasks from the oral mech exam. And then we'll go back and do maybe 10 more words. And then we'll go back and do, you know, five more tasks from the oral mech exam. And so I think breaking it up sometimes, you don't have to sit down and go through this entire test all at the same time, because I don't know if you've ever, you know, worked with a three-year-old over teletherapy, but um, (laughs) it's, it's tricky. And in order to keep them very, uh, you know, engaged and not, you know, walk to the other room because they can do that. I've had that happen. Like, well, you're gone now. Okay. I guess I'm done. So I think, I think going back and forth and having, having that, um, giving yourself that freedom to just do little bits and pieces of, of the exam kind of, you know, you can break it up a little bit. Um, so moving quickly, breaking it up, having that throat scope is a huge benefit because I think too, it keeps the kids engaged, even if they don't have one on their side, when I have one on my side and I can show, they can actually see inside my mouth, what I'm doing. It helps them understand what I want them to do. And so it kind of, gets them to look at my face. They do, they really think it's the coolest thing, even on, even on my side of the screen. And so I think using that, um, just, 
you know, I, I post on my Instagram all the time. I just posted maybe, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago of doing an, an exam with my throat scope on my side and showing him how I wanted him to move his tongue to, so I could see if there was different, um, dissociation from the tongue in the jaw and it worked so, so well. So that has been really good. And then I think also, I've already mentioned this, but having your checklist so that you exact, you know, exactly what you've already done and you just can easily check things off as you go through it. So I think those would be my, my, uh, top three tips. And if it, if it is, uh, you know, doing this virtually, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully there's an involved parent on the other side yes. of that camera. And so you, you could be doing some training, uh, of what the parent could be doing to help Right. give you what you need during that oral med exam. Um, but I, I would imagine the other thing is if there's, you know, some definite concern, you may be referring like, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking more for teletherapists where they're working with somebody who's not local. You, you would refer out, right. Or, or wait until you can get that information in person. Absolutely. From, like, from a speech pathologist. Exactly. So again, if you're, if you're noticing some things and if you, that case history, I'm telling you, it gives you so much information too. If in, if you're looking at the case history, if you're looking at what you're seeing with the oral mech exam, and if you're looking at what their speech issues are and all of that information combined, um, you might need to, you might need to tell them, you know what, I really recommend that you see an SLP in person. So if you could, you know, let me, let's find, um, a, somebody that I can refer you to where you live if, if you're not close to them. Um, or, you know, maybe at some point you'll have a plan in place where, okay, we'll, we'll start to be able to do in-person therapy here. Um, but we can, we can maybe try some therapy in, in the meantime to see what's going on. But yeah, if you see some red flags for things that that child might need a referral for, um, like to, um, a cleft palatine. Like if you're seeing some things that are jumping out, I, even some, if there's some soft neurological signs, that's sometimes warranted a referral back to the pediatrician um, so that they can look in the possibility of a, a neurology referral. So some of these things, um, sometimes we are the first, you know, when we're looking in the mouths of these kids, I, I know you think like pediatricians are on top of this stuff, but sometimes they don't always look at, um, they, they're looking at structure, but not always function too. So I think sometimes we are on the front lines of actually discovering things that yes. nobody has seen before. So or I think they're looking at certain structure. They're doing yeah. like the knee taps and they're looking at into your ears and maybe yep. just having you say, ah, and nothing else. They're looking in the back of your throat to see if it's red, you know, or they're looking at right. tonsils. I'm looking at how the velum is working. I'm looking at the hard palate. I'm looking at their bite. I'm looking at all those things. So yeah, sometimes we are the first people we're, we're kind of on the front lines of, of discovering things that, um, that, you know, kids might need to be seen for. I can tell you, I have been the first to, um, bring to attention to parents in large tonsils. Yeah. Where I'll yeah. call and I'll, and I, cause, and you know, you're, I'm talking to the child and he's not sleeping at night yeah. and, and he can't breathe and his, you know, the, the vocal quality is impacted and all of these things are going on. And so I look in the mouth and I'm like, well, hello. Yes. Hey. And so I called the parents and they're like, oh, oh, okay. I'll take, you know, I'll take them to the doctor. So yeah, um, exactly. I, I do. I think, you know, that's where we always joke about, you know, speech language pathologists, we, we work from the, the neck up. And so that <laughs> mouth, you know, we, we are the ones a lot of the times, um, unless you're Lisa and I quizzed her yesterday on several of the structural what? and anatomy ah. parts of the mouth <laughs> and oral <laughs> mech. And talking about? I don't think that's it's true. It's like when we do the, what is it? We just need to brush up again. At our state convention, when they do the praxis, I know all of those answers. You answered um, molecular every single time. No. <laughs> oh, blah, blah, blah. 
Okay. We just need to brush up on our anatomy a little bit. But Don't I, we I all, do. though? I tell you that yeah. I, sometimes, I mean, I wrote this exam, and sometimes I even have to go back and read what my guidelines were. Like, wait, what? What was that? What, do, what does that mean again? <laughs> it's true, but it's good to have those guidelines in front of you because sometimes you're like, wait, I haven't seen this in like three years. I need to, you know, because we don't always see all the structural things in every child. So, you know, you have to kind of brush up on it from time to time. Well, and I love that you not just did the checklist, but like you said, you have all the rationale there for um, what could be clinically relevant. And that's right. the kind of stuff that you just need to copy and paste right into that evaluation. Oh, completely. Because you don't want to get to the med meeting. <laughs> and they're like, so what does that mean? <laughs> and um, you're like, I don't know. And you're like, well, um, it's, a, it's a problem. Logical. <laughs> Problem. Right. Exactly. And I, them, so I go, just answer when in doubt, just answer. It could be neurological. <laughs> <laughs> We're joking people. I That's one way to go. That's one way to go. We're joking. Um, no, so this is perfect though. I want, let's talk about those guidelines because here's where this matters. I think more than anything is for the differential diagnosis of speech sound disorders and yes. how we use the oral mech to guide treatment. Yes, absolutely. So that can, it can tell you so much information. I think we've already, we, I think everybody kind of knows, like if there is some weakness, um, then you, you're going to want to have your ears perked to, to a dysarthria, but it, dysarthria is the speech disorder. So if there's some weakness there, but that's not the nature of the child's speech issue, note that, note that there is some weakness, but you don't, you're not going to necessarily need to, um, increase that weakness because like I've said, like, I think we've already addressed non-speech oral motor exercises to increase strength of the articulators do not have a direct correlation to improved speech. So it's not something you have to necessarily work on directly. Um, you need to work on speech to improve speech, but, but it, it can impact progress, right? It absolutely, so be- absolutely. You got to note it, right? Know it, know that that's what's going on and know that, okay, well, so this child, if this is dysarthria, then we're really going to have to work on breath support. We're going to have to work on over-articulating. We're going to probably have to work on um, the rate of speech as well, because those are things that are going to help that child with that, those particular deficits improve their speech. And to prep the parents with this too, we're going back to that whole idea of impacting progress over time. Yeah. It could take longer to establish Absolutely. these speech sounds. And so you don't want to like have the parent just see this progress report that is not making tons of progress when you're working on a lot of different foundational skills and it's just going to take a little bit longer and that's okay. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, in this kind of the same realm, if you're doing all of these things that you're noticing that the child is really having some difficulty with those volitional non-speech tasks, like, you know, okay, open your mouth, pucker your lips, stick your tongue out. If you're noticing that they're having significant difficulty and then go and definitely, and I have the Diadoco kinetic syllable rate chart on, on my exam too, because that's super important. Go and look. Can you tell us why? (laughs) I will. That's another one I do, but I'm not Mm -hmm. maybe sure why. So to me, I think the most valid, the most important thing that I get, get from that is, you know, I I get the pa, 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 pa. We're going to do that 20 times. I'm going to see how fast you can do it. Um, if you have a child I, with dysarthria, see, I even have to look back kind of at some of my, my papers, even to remind myself, but Don't if you pull have out your guidelines, I know I'm pulling out my guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have a child who, once you get to that two or three syllable, the pataka, 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 I've had kids who do great on pa, 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 no problem. They're right. Like 
what do they, they do 20 reps in five seconds. That's perfect. That's just right on target. But then you get to the multiple pataka or the pata, 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 and they just totally break down and absolutely cannot coordinate those at all. I just had a child I assessed last week did beautifully. There were no other, um, no other big red flags for apraxia, but once we got to pataka and this was a school-aged child, you should be able to do that. Patika, 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 10 times. And I, then I, I look and see how many, how many seconds does it take that child to get to 10 times? She could not coordinate it to do it once. And so it was a total like, I wish you could see my face. <laughs> I look really good doing this. Well, you know, <laughs> but what does it, was, it mean when somebody can't say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? That's not I the same thing. I think that just means you're not a Disney fan, maybe. I'm not sure. Right. Well, what if they are a said Disney this fan? This is not the same thing. Let's go back to <laughs> Somebody. She's making a- fun of me because I do actually have some issues with probably motorcycles. Do you have sequels. problems with that? Aw. Yeah. Uh, let's see if Amy can fix you. Say no. Supercalifragilistic. No. <laughs> <laughs> we just need it's to break. We me. just need to break it down. I'll get my Bjorn speech cues and we'll make it happen. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad but, you. I'm glad you brought that up on why that sequencing is important and so. So Super what important. if for, for your child who had difficulty with that, what does this yeah. mean? So I, I missed that last part. What did you ask? Uh, about the, the little girl you said couldn't even do it once. No, she could not. And so I, I was looking at rhythmicity, coordination, was there groping? And yes, there was all of that during the patika portion. Like she could not even coordinate it. Um, and this was probably, and so I did, that is a red flag for, ooh, that's a big red flag for apraxia. So I switched courses with my assessment and did a dynamic motor speech assessment to look specifically at apraxia because you cannot diagnose apraxia with just an artic test. Um, you have to really dig a little deeper and make it a dynamic assessment. And can you so, tell us, can you tell us why we learned this from Jenny Bjorn, but can oh, you tell the listeners why this is true? You need to really dig deeper and find out where and why that child is breaking down at different syllable levels. And you need to basically what that will tell and, and you're basically providing cues and probes for this child to see if they can become more accurate as you have them repeat words, syllables, um, phrases multiple times. And you're looking for consistencies because as you probe them and you have them produce these target words, and there's a very, you know, there's a method for going through um, the different syllable shapes and having them say these words back to you multiple times, you're looking for all of these signs of apraxia and that's how they show up. All those, you know, the the Mayo 10 or 11, what it is now, you know, you're looking for groping, you're looking for um, difficulty with prosody, with, you know, how basically, you know, all the things of apraxia. Um, and I don't, I don't have my assessment in front of me, but I, so I did that with this little girl and she was the most obvious, obviously apraxic child I probably ever diagnosed, but it did not show up necessarily un, in the oral mech exam until I went to the pedica portion. So super, super so important to include those. You have talked about dysarthria and how oral mechs can help, you know, identify that and yeah. apraxia. What about, is there, are there anything that, or anything that you can gain from uh, this exam for phonological versus articulation or not so much? Yeah, for sure. Like for my single sound error kids, I want to know, are there any restrictions? Because I know there's a lot of controversy about a tongue tie, 
But if you have a child who has been in therapy for five, six, seven years, we're still working on R, and you're noticing a significant tongue tie, most kids can, you know, produce speech well, and they can compensate well with a tongue tie, and it's not an issue. But if you have a child and and they are just not able to, then that might be something to consider. Like this really might be impacting speech. So for my single sound error kids, I'm looking at structure and function too. So like, like we said earlier, can they, um, can they dissociate their tongue from their jaw? If they can't, you might need to back up and work on that for a session or two to make sure that they know that skill on how to do that. Um, and then work on that in, in, um, in the context of speech. So that's how I use it for my single sound error kids. And for phonology, it's for ruling out any issues for me. That's why I look at it. Like I'm looking at, because it's, it helps in that differential diagnosis. If you have a child with these consistent phonological error patterns, or if they're consistently, um, have, if they consistently have phoneme collapse, I'm like, well, okay, let's, let's go through this oral mech and see maybe if there's anything that could be, um, a red flag for, you know, that it's not phonological. It's not just phonological because it's always, it's often not just phonological. Sometimes there are motor components. I've had kids and I call, we call them, you know, mixed speech sound disorders where there is a motor planning component and there's a phonological component. So I might treat this child as if they have, you know, as maybe from a phonological perspective, maybe I'll do multiple oppositions, but I'm going to know, want to know to incorporate those principles of motor learning into that therapy as well, because maybe both things are going on. Yeah, oh, I love this so much. This was what, what was so powerful for me is, you know, I, I always look back and reflect on my practice and, and I'm embarrassed. I think I, I felt like I wasted time with the wrong treatment approach um, for, for some of the students that I had, have had on my caseload in the past. And, and it was because I don't think that was ever explained so clearly to me that, that you know, differential diagnosis and how critical that is for determining your treatment approach. Well, and how complex these yeah. speech disorders are. I mean, it's not just our tick. It's, oh my you know, gosh. so many different how, things. How often and even, have you heard that? It's just, oh, this is just an art tick right. And then I right. get them and you do an oral mech exam and you're like, oh, maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe it's not just our tick. There's some other underlying issues we need to address. So you're yeah. so right. It's, it's so much, even just SSDs, it's so much more complicated than I think most of us realize. Cool. So I think the moral of the story is do the oral mech and <laughs> Just follow do it. Amy Graham and follow Amy Graham. I love Amy. And I know we've said Jenny's name like 19 times <laughs> during this too, but I think why you guys both stand out is not just because you're in the great state of Colorado, but True. I love that you share what you're doing in therapy for these things that again, that maybe I was not doing yeah. well. And to then I see it modeled. See it. Yeah. yeah. It's so powerful. I'm a hands-on. I'm a hands-on person. I need to see somebody do it, and so I figured that other SLPs felt the same way. So I think if you see somebody do it, and you also know, you know the the ideas behind it, it just makes it easier, I think, to learn. Well, thank you for your contributions. I know it's hard to put yourself out there, and so I appreciate that you're willing to do that because I, I do. I think we learn so much. Um, from seeing these things in action. And, you know, th- even this podcast episode was one where I was like, how the hell are we talking about oral mechs for an hour? Yeah. And, and this look, has been it. fascinating. <laughs> it's been so interesting. And I really appreciate you sharing what you have learned. Um, I love, again, that contribution to the field that you put this into um, this tool that we can use to help guide our clinical judgment, but also not just have us do it, but know why we're doing it. Right. Um, and, and there's so much value there. So we're going to link to 
that in the the resources as well. Um, but then this just also led me to all of the other conversations I want to have with you. I, I think we need to do some follow up on, on treatment coaches and things like that. I, just, I would love to. Anyway, we appreciate you so much, Amy. Um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Lisa. Okay. Now for those of you listening, if you're in the time frame of SLP connect, which I should know the dates off the top of my head and I don't, um, listen for this outro. Cause it's going to give you all the details you need to know, but that's it for us. Take care guys. Thank you for participating in SLP connect. Remember that listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this conference, there is a small $25 administration fee to process and submit your paperwork. You can pay this administration fee and find more details at tasseltogether.com slash slpconnect. Once your purchase is made, you will be able to access the course evaluation, quiz, and earn your certificate. Please submit these materials by October 7th, 2020 at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. SLP Connect would like to thank its sponsors for offering products, services, and discounts as giveaways to attendees at no charge. You can see a list of these sponsors and enter to win on the SLP Connect webpage. SLP Connect would also like to thank the presenter of this course who has provided her speaking services at no charge. Ready to fill your digital swag bag? You can enter to win a giveaway of your choice by taking a screenshot of this course and sharing it on social media. Use the hashtag SLPConnect2020 so we can find you. The winner will be announced by midnight, October 10th, 2020. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this second annual PodCon.